I just love, love that, that account. I could read that over and over again. I don't know about you, but... Whew. So I, I read an article the other day, and it was entitled, Northeast Dominates List of America's Most Post-Christian Cities. And the article was, it was based on a report that has just been released by the Barna Group, which is a, a research uh, institute. And um, it was released on Wednesday. It was based on a 10-year study that ended in April 2018. So it's very, very recent. And they listed the top 10 post-Christian cities in the U.S. And the top eight are all in the Northeast. And so to fit Barna's label of post-Christian, a respondent had to meet at least 13 of 16 listed criteria. And some of these included not believing in God, uh, not attended church in the past six months, never made a commitment to Jesus, not prayed to God in the past week, having not read the Bible at all in the last week, believe that Jesus was not sinless, and do not consider faith important in their lives. So those were some of the criteria uh, that they were asking. And guess what was ranked the number one post-Christian city in America? Bill Rick, no. <laughs> Springfield, Massachusetts. Springfield, Hollyoke, Massachusetts. That was ranked number one, where apparently 66% of those surveyed uh, uh, fitted the Barnes definition for the term. So Springfield was, was first, and then occupying the top eight slots on the list, we had second was Portland, Auburn, Maine. Uh, we, let's see, at third, three through eight in descending order was Providence, Rhode Island, uh, New Bedford, Massachusetts, Burlington, Vermont, Boston, Massachusetts, Manchester, New Hampshire, and Albany, New York, Hartford, New Haven, Connecticut, and Rochester, New York. It's quite a list, isn't it? And it's uh, a list that we are probably very familiar with a lot of those places. They're close to home, aren't they, literally? And as you, you, know, as you listen to that and you um, process that, a natural reaction to that report, if you're a believer, might be one of despair or discouragement, right? You might listen to those statistics and just be like, wow, that's kind of depressing. And we're living right in the middle of it. But if we understand that report in light of what we just read from Scripture, then actually I think we have every right to feel strangely excited and full of hope for what the Lord has done and what the Lord can do. And I believe what the Lord is going to do. And we're going to come back to that a little bit later. But for now, let's, let's take a walk through this account of Pentecost. And I hope it will, it will inspire your hearts, that it will, it will fill you with excitement and expectant hope at what the Lord can do. So we're told that um, it was the Feast of Pentecost. And, and Pentecost, it was, a, it was an important Jewish festival. It was also known as the Feast of Harvest and the Feast of Weeks. It was called the Feast of Weeks because it was celebrated... Uh, seven weeks or 50 days, so a week of weeks, if you like, after Passover. And Pentecost itself means 50 or 50th. So it was a celebration 50 days after the Jewish Passover. And they cel it celebrated the beginning of the grain harvest and also the giving of the Mosaic law and the, the covenant that, that God made with Moses. And so we're told the opening Verse there says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So, who's the all? 
Well, well, basically, at this point, we, we are talking about the entire Christian church of the whole world. Think about that. That's, that was the whole church. And they were gathered in one place. And in Acts chapter 1, we're told it was about 120 people. That's incidentally about the number of people that would make this place look very full. That's where the church started. 120 believers gathered in one room together. Think of the possibilities. And what are they doing? What are they doing? Well, they're waiting. They're waiting. And by doing that, they're actually following Jesus' command to wait. If you look back to Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, listen to what it says. It says, On one occasion, while they were eating, while he was eating with them, he being Jesus, he gave them this command Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So they're waiting, just as Jesus instructed. They are waiting. And what are they waiting for? They are waiting for a promise, a promise from God the Father himself. Now, a word of advice. If Jesus tells you to wait, you should probably wait. It's good advice. Whenever you get words from the Lord, <laughs> that is good advice. And it's funny, actually, isn't it? Because, you know, the discipline of waiting is a lost art today, isn't it? I feel we, we are getting more and more impatient. You know, if a, a web page takes more than a couple of pages to uh, a couple of seconds to open, like, you know, stop pushing buttons and come on, what's going on? You know, get a stand in line at the grocery store. Oh boy, wait, I have five seconds. Oh, I get the phone out. You know, it's we've lost the art of waiting. But actually, as people of faith, waiting is key to our faith because it's actually one of the ways the Lord answers our prayers. I think basically there's, there's sort of three ways the Lord tends to answer our prayers. It's either yes, no, or wait. Wait. And sometimes it's in the waiting that we learn the most and our faith grows the most. Instead of the Lord giving us instantly what we want, sometimes in the waiting is where the growing happens. So as we look at verses 2 to 4, <clears throat> this highlights three ways the supernatural power of God is displayed in that room of 120 folks. Okay, three ways. And this is, he displays it through their hearing, their sight, and speech. So first of all, we're told that they hear what sounds like the blowing of a mighty wind. Now notice it says a sound like the blowing of mighty wind. This wasn't a mighty wind. It was like a mighty wind but it was the power, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit that was flowing through that room. And interestingly, the word wind in both Hebrew and Greek, which are the predominant languages that the, uh, uh, the Bible was written in, the word means not only wind, but it can also mean spirit or breath. It's a very, very significant word in Scripture. It's the Hebrew word ruach and the Greek word pneuma. And it can mean wind, spirit, or breath, all associated with the life and the power of God. So they heard, and then it says, we're told, it, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. Again, do you notice that word seemed? It wasn't literally fire, because think about it, if it was really fire and it was descending on their heads, everybody would have had singed hair in the room, 
And they'd all be looking like Friar Tuck, the monk, and these little, you know, circular bald spots. But it seemed like tongues of fire. And again, it was a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit's power. They heard, they saw, and finally were told they spoke in tongues or languages as the Holy Spirit enabled them. Quite amazing, isn't it? Can you imagine that happening today? Can you imagine us being sitting in this sanctuary right now and us getting that rush of wind and those tongues of fire? Now, these manifestations of the Holy Spirit through fire and wind, they're actually, these are quite typical ways that God would manifest his presence in the, in the Old Testament. You know, remember God appearing to, to Moses in the, the burning bush? Or um, leading the Israelites through the wilderness, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and the fire on Sinai? These are all what we call technically theophanies. Theophanies are, are manifestations of God to people. So now, because it was, because it was the, the Feast of Pentecost, Jerusalem would have been packed. It would have been packed and full of visitors from all over the surrounding countries. And this is why it was packed. It was a very big celebration. It was actually a national holiday. People got the day off. You know, like we get the day off uh, Memorial Day or whatever. Well, it was a big national holiday. And Jews from all the surrounding countries in the area would be um, surging into Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. And so we have these 120 people who have had this infusion of the Holy Spirit. And obviously, that would create a commotion. And many heard this commotion. When you think about it, right, there's no doubt that 120 believers on fire for the Lord, filled with a turbo espresso shot of the Holy Spirit, would make a lot of noise. Why is that? Well, because when you are ridiculously excited about something, what do you do? You make a lot of noise. You jump around. You bounce. Okay, you can't contain yourself. Well, imagine what the scene must have been. If you are super filled with the Holy Spirit, I can't even describe the joy and elation you would feel at that. But they're obviously, they're making a lot of noise. And people around, they hear them speaking in their own languages. And we're talking about Galileans here, folks. Now, let me tell you something about Galileans. Galileans were the rednecks of their day. Okay, they, they, were, they were looked down on by the elites in Jerusalem, by the city folk, because they talked funny. Okay, um, I know here in the U.S., there's kind of a, uh, you know how, it's not a good thing, but we have a tendency to judge people by the way they speak, don't we? You know, if you've got a little bit of a, a funny accent or, or whatever, you know, we tend to judge your intelligence. People do it all the time with me in the wrong way. They think I'm really intelligent because I have this nice British accent, but it's all an act, <laughs> But in the U.S., it tends to be, uh, you know, the southern accent, right? People can tend to sort of look down on a little bit. Where I'm from in, in England, it's the reverse. If you're a northerner, and I am a northerner, then you're kind of, the, a strong northern accent is kind of looked down upon. You know, people think you, you must not be too smart if you have a thick northern accent. And so with the Galileans, it, it, that was kind of the case, right? It's funny because most of Jesus' disciples were Galileans, by the way. But... Um, they had a reputation for kind of, you know, being uncultured and they had trouble pronouncing the gutturals and had a habit of swallowing their syllables. So the fact that these people are speaking in multiple languages, and you can imagine it would be fluent, I'm sure they had the right dialect and accent, must have just absolutely flabbergasted 
the people around. I mean, it's kind of like, imagine somebody you knew, uh, have known your whole life, grew up in Bill Ricker together, went to school together, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, you hear him speaking fluent Mandarin. You'd be blown away, wouldn't you? You'd be like, when, when did you learn Mandarin? You'd be like, I, I didn't. I'm just, I'm speaking it right now. I don't know how. <laughs> but that's the kind of amazing uh, miracle that we're looking at. And Luke tells us, he says, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Now, obviously, it's unlikely that there were people there from every nation under heaven. Yeah, I mean, I, I doubt there was probably, there probably wasn't anybody there from Scotland, for example. You know, did you listen to Peter? Did, you, did he just say bagpipes? I'm sure he mentioned bagpipes. There was, you know, there was probably no Scottish people there. But from Luke's point of view, from what he knew of the world in his time, remember they didn't have the internet or Google back then, so to him it must have seemed like there was people from every nation under heaven there. And he, he gives us a list of nations doesn't he, and, and places uh, that, that um, we just heard about. And I have to admit, when I was preparing the scripture, I was wondering who the lay reader was. I was like, boy, I hope they uh, read this ahead of time um, and did a wonderful job, I might add. But we get this list of, of, of people, of this nation, and there's, there's actually there's a deeper significance going on here with this list of nations and also them all being able to hear and understand and to, to understand that deeper significance, we actually we have to go back, all the way back to the book of Genesis, to chapter 11 of Genesis. And we don't have time to read that chapter right now, but it's basically the, the account of the Tower of Babel. And you're probably somewhat familiar with that account. But the chapter begins with this. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And so this was, this was after... The post the flood of Noah. And at this time, everybody spoke the same language. And humankind being what it is, decided, oh, you know what? We're going to build a tower all the way up to heaven to find God. And it's rather ironic because that's actually what most religions in the world try to do. They try to build their way up to God. And of course, in our faith, God comes down to meet us. But they decide to, to build this tower. And the Lord sees what's going on. And he sees that this is not good. And so he comes down and he, he spreads confusion and divides their languages. So now all of a sudden they're not all speaking the same language. And obviously they can't achieve the same thing. So in a sense, there's, there's kind of the Lord put a curse on humanity. So that they would not be able to achieve all these things. When we look at Pentecost, it's a reminder to us that the curse has been broken through what Jesus did on the cross. Through his death and resurrection, the curse has bro been broken. And this is another reminder, as all the languages are understood, that the curse that was also placed at, at Babel has also been broken. And in a sense, when we, when we read that opening verse that said when the day of Pentecost came, it's actually, it would be better translated when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. This was, back then, and still is, a, an eschatological, an end time promise 
being fulfilled that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It's a promise by God and it's a sign, Pentecost, that a new age has been ushered in that will be filled with the Holy Spirit. It was an Old, Old Testament prophecy. And this, is, and this is where Peter leads us, when Peter talks to the crowd, right? Peter sets the record straight because some people are saying, oh, these guys, they must just be drunk. You know, and Peter says, don't be ridiculous. It's only nine in the morning. Liquor stores don't open until 10. They're not drunk. But instead, he quotes from the Old Testament, from the book of Joel. And, you know, we hear a lot, don't we, these days about, are we living in the end times? Is this the end times? You know, is, is Armageddon coming? Are we the generation of the end times? Well, the fact is, we've been living in the end times ever since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and gave us the Holy Spirit. That has ushered in the end times. We've been in them ever since then. And, and Peter shares with them, doesn't he, this passage from, from the book of Joel. It says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. That's on all believers. If you're a believer there's going to be a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. That word pour, pour out, it means, imagine a, a, a torrential downpour. That's what it means on a, a parched earth. Listen to Isaiah 43, verse 20. The Lord says, I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. The Lord has been and is pouring out his Holy Spirit power. And guess what? He's pouring it out on all people. Not just some people, but all believers. It will be poured out. People, sons and daughters, young men and old men. Men and women. That's because God's kingdom is going to be full of every nation and every ethnicity. That outpouring of the Holy Spirit that happened over 2,000 years ago, guess what? It wasn't just for then. It's for today as well. And it's still happening. We are living in a time that was predicted. And God continues to pour out his Holy Spirit on us as believers and on the church. And guess what? You know, if a church is not operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, then it's an impotent and useless church that will decay and die. The Lord, the Lord has no use for churches that will not walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to rely on him instead of our, our, uh, our own schemes. So remember that report I was talking about at the beginning? And how I said it would, it would be easy to feel discouraged by that report. But I also said, but I, I was strangely excited when I read it. Well, why is that? Well, it's because we're in one of the most spiritually dry and dead geographical regions in the U.S. Maybe in the world. And it's an area, this town, the region, that is in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is that a good thing? Why is that something to be excited about? Because it means it is ripe for revival. Think about it, folks. You don't revive something that is alive and thriving. It doesn't need it. 
You revive something that is dying or dead and in need of new life. And guess what? We have a God who loves to breathe new life, who loves to bring things back from the dead. And I believe that each and every one of us has been strategically placed to be living where we are and to be in the time that we are for a very important reason. Don't, folks, don't ever think for a second that you are not important to God's plan. Every one of you is incredibly important to God and to his plans for the world. We are all in this town or in this area and part of this church because as believers in Jesus, we are vessels of the Holy Spirit and we have divine purpose and mission for this town. I really believe that, folks. And we get to be part of what the Lord is doing in this area. How exciting is that? We get to be part of what the Lord is going to do. And I believe, folks, I really do believe this. I believe revival is coming to Bill Ricker. I believe revival is coming to Massachusetts. I believe revival is coming to New England. I believe revival is coming to the Northeast because it is ripe for it. It is ripe for it. And the Lord has sent his Holy Spirit, just like he did at Pentecost, to empower and equip us to do his work. Now, you know, ultimately, the work, the work of revival is always something that God initiates and chooses to do. You can't force revival. Okay, as much as we might like to sometimes, that is not our decision. God is the one who initiates revival. But we do have a role, a very important role to play in the Lord bringing revival. We're the ones. We're the ones who cry out to the Lord for the lost souls in our community. If we don't, who will? We are the ones that get on our knees and lie prostrate, weeping, interceding, and pleading for this community in this area. When was the last time you just cried out to the Lord, Lord, would you fill this town? Would you bring people to a knowledge of who you are? Would you bring them conviction of their sin and then show them the freedom that is found in you? Exodus 3.9 says, I have heard the cry of my people. Genesis 18.20 tells us that uh, the Lord heard the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord told Hezekiah when he begged the Lord to not let him die. He said, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will hear you. We have a God who listens, folks. He listens when we cry out. When we plead with him, it does not fall on deaf ears. We don't always get the answer we want, right? Remember I was talking about the yes, no, or wait. That is not our concern of how God answers. We are to pray and intercede. We intercede for each other and we intercede and plead for the people of this town. He hears our cries when we, our prayers when we cry out to him. But folks, we have to pray. We have to pray and pray earnestly. You know, we have a weekly prayer meeting here on, on Wednesdays, right? And we have the faithful few people who come every, almost every week. And, you know, the funny thing is when revival hits, you don't need to ask people to come to prayer meetings. They're bursting at the doors. They can't wait to get in with other believers and pray together and feel the power of the Lord. That's what revival does. But we need to do it, folks. We need to pray together. I want to encourage you, if you can make that prayer meeting, come. Come and pray. Come and join us. There is power in praying together. We need to pray, and we need to share, and we need to love. We need to pray. We need to share with people our faith. 
in who Jesus is and, and the hope that can be found in him. And we need to love people like Jesus loves people. That's not always easy, is it? Because some people are harder to love than others, but we are called to do it. Wouldn't you want to see a New England Pentecost? How amazing would that be? To see an act and move of the Holy Spirit that just sets this place on fire for the Lord. That picture at the back, folks, that we got commissioned, that picture, I believe, is, is no accident. I'm not a super prophetic guy. I don't get visions and pictures from the Lord and, and that kind of thing generally. But I really believe that what the Lord shared there is a sign that revival is coming. And we have to stay in the trenches and pray and wait with expectant hope for what the Lord is going to do. Can you imagine what that would look like? Let's pray. Father, we know that you are the one who sends revival. It's through your power, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, that um, we get to see what you will do. And Lord, I am full of faith. I stand here, Lord, today to pray, to plead for this community, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come up in power on this church and it would come in power upon this community in the area, Lord. And Lord, we know you have the power to do it. I pray that you would empower us as a church, Lord, to be full of faith, to be a church of prayer, to be a church of praying people who would pray often and earnestly and with faith. Stir up our hearts, Lord. Stir us. Give us a desire to want to be in prayer with you, to gather together and to lift this town up. Lord, you are so good. You are so good and you're so full of faith. And so we praise you and we give you thanks and we pray all this in Jesus' name.